So I'm not sure how many listeners have been in this situation. Since I often take time off work to do races, when I come back, I get asked upon my return, how far was the marathon this weekend? Of course, I always just thought that this question came from non-runners because marathon weekends often have a range of distances from the 1K for kids all the way up to the marathon distance. It would make sense that a non-runner would assume that all the distances are just marathons of different distances, not specifically the 42.2 kilometer distance. Alan and I live in Quebec, and this Canadian province was settled by the French. In today's book, one of the things we learned was that the French were initially resistant to the idea that marathon would have a defined distance. They used the term to describe any long run. So maybe the question we get about the length of the marathon we did on the weekend is just part of our DNA. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you would like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running, or maybe inspire you to try something new. My name is Liz, and with my co-host, Alan, we're going to talk with author Roger Robinson about his book, Running Throughout Time. Running Throughout Time tells a few very key stories about the history and evolution of running. Making a comprehensive book of every story that makes up running history would be massive, so this book tries to pick out the stories that were not told as often, or maybe not quite told correctly. It starts with the story of the marathon and how it became the 42.2k distance we know today, and ends with Alison Rowe from New Zealand and her inspiring but short professional running career. All the stories chosen in this book have influenced how we experience our sport today, particularly including the inclusion of women. So let me tell you a bit about Roger, if you don't remember him from our last episode with Roger. He's a true fan of the sport of running. He's born in England, but has moved to several countries throughout his life to run and even end up marrying another very famous runner, who we'll hear mention of probably as we go. Roger was an elite runner in the 60s and 70s, which kind of gives away how experienced, in inverted commas, he is, on several occasions running for the English team and the New Zealand team in 1977. He went on to be a high-level Masters athlete and running a master record for the marathon in Vancouver in 1981. Of course, you're all interested in knowing that he ran a time of 2 hours, 18 minutes and 44 seconds. He also set other records, including an over-50s marathon record. Roger has a PhD in literature from Cambridge University. He followed up with a lectureship at the University of Canterbury and was Professor of English at the University of Wellington. I assume that's in New Zealand. He was an announcer at big running events and became a great running writer. He has authored and co-authored several other books, including Running in Literature, 26.2 Marathon Stories with his wife Catherine Switzer, and When Running Made History, which, if you remember, last year we made an episode with him about. Since the last time we spoke... I noticed Roger's been a bit busy, not just writing his book, but also doing a bit of running. We saw that uh, he broke the 80-plus Wellington record for the 5,000 meters in a time of 26 minutes, 45 seconds. I also looked up the record this morning while I was just checking the biography, and I noticed that his name also occurs next to the 3,000 meters and the 1 mile and the 1,500 meters. 1500 meters and 3000 meters seem to suggest that there are also New Zealand records in the Eddy Plus category. Before we ask you about the book, Roger, we should probably say, are you, you know, back in form and taking all come on all comers in the Eddy Plus category now? 
Well, I, I love it, Alan, when you say that I hold the Wellington or New Zealand record because I'm, I'm like that as well. At the age I am now, uh, I'm allowed to have memory lapses. And so if I'm telling people I'm the New Zealand one mile record holder, I forget to say over 80. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, well, Pete, Peter Snell and, and John Walker and Nick Willis are not listening. So, so I can yeah. imagine the claiming to be the New Zealand. <laughs> Zilla won my record. <laughs> These are all over overrated records. I uh, and I got the um, the New Zealand ones when they were relatively soft. I haven't managed to get the New Zealand ones at five thousand or ten thousand because uh, there was some guy around about two year two thousand and two thousand one who who put those down at around the 22, mm. 22 minute mark for five k. And I'm not down oh, there. Oh boy. Um, but uh, but yes, I've I've had. In the last year, uh, I think when I talked to you, I probably was um, still coming out of a broken uh, fibula in the leg and so had not been able to do any running for a good while. It was just starting again, I think, in mid-2021. Um, but then I built up slowly and have been running good races. And, and now I'm uh, back in our American home. Uh, I run a decent half marathon at Syracuse in just outside two hours, 2.01. Uh, and then recently, there's a big, big race called the Boiler U- Utica Boilermaker. Yes. Utica, we know that well. Uh, yeah, we yeah. do. Yeah, and 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 I I broke their over 80 record by 10 minutes and run a one run a 124 for 15k. And and as you know, oh. if you know the race, hot hot and hilly, not not an easy one. No. Um, so yeah, at the minute it's 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 going well. Of course, it, it, at this age, it can end or be interrupted at any moment. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, so I, I'm still enjoying it very much and, and writing about that. And just while we're still on that, and it's, it's, it's not, not in the book, but um, I did one piece that I think all older runners will be interested in. It was on in, in Outside, the American Outside magazine, yeah. out, Outside mm-hmm. Online. And it was called something like Why I Still Like Racing at the Age of 83. And it described my experience of running on the track last New Zealand summer when, when we were there because of COVID. And when track was really the only thing that could happen because government regulations restricted gatherings to 100 people. And so road race couldn't really happen. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but you could have track meets because you could phase people coming in and out of the stadium. Uh, so there was never more than 100 there at one time. You'd come in for your mm-hmm. race and then, and then leave again. So we, I, I ran a full track season. And there was this very strange kind of dual experience of running on the track, being hopelessly lapped by all the younger runners, you know, lapped and relapped. And they, mm-hmm. they would come by. And so I was miles at the back of the field. I really, I suffered every runner's worst nightmare, which is to go round and round the track and be lapped by everybody else and finish last by two or three laps. And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, I was breaking over 80 records. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they were, all, they were all very nice to me. And, and overall, I mean, it was a strange mixed experience, but overall I enjoyed it. And I, I wrote it. I said, I, I felt, I didn't know how to feel really, but I felt like a, a decrepit old dog who gets a pat because he still tries to chase his ball. <laughs> so, so I think it's actually interesting. So like, I wonder why it is that um, as people get older, they, they steer away from the track events because like you said, uh, you know, some of them were happening before the road races because they could happen because they're so much smaller. So, but you know, most uh, most recreational runners will like never go to a track meet. They'll never, you know, even think about it. And yet, you keep on you keep on entering track events 
I mean, to your credit, even while you're being lapped, uh, do you think that the fact that you're being lapped is the reason why people kind of avoid track events or yeah, do you have a theory about that maybe? Yeah, and it's it's partly just the restriction of going round and round. Somehow going round going round 25 times seems a lot worse than running 10K. Mm. <laughs> and you have to make mental, have to kind of play mental games. And I was in fact trying to interpret that distance when I was running 10,000 on the track. And I was thinking, well, if I was running around the Wellington waterfront now, you know, now I'd be at this corner and now I'd be at this bay and, 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 and just to try and make it more manageable. And I think the main thing is, is just exactly that. Everybody has this terrible fear of, of coming last. Uh, well, all I can say is if you're going to keep running when you're 83, you better get used to it <laughs> because, because there's really not much alternative. Uh, and the key thing, what I tried to get in that article and why so many people have liked it is that I still get this perverse satisfaction in racing because I'm still trying to get the best out of myself. And I was racing, I, I was, as it were, conducting a virtual race against the guys who had set those records 10 or 20 years ago. That was the competition. There's no point in me trying to compete against 30 and 40 year olds because they, they, they were just, they, as soon as, as, soon as the, the man said go, they were gone, they were halfway around the track. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is just ridiculous. Uh, but the satisfaction of getting the best out of yourself, you know, knowing what training you've done, knowing you might be able to improve a few seconds. And I said in that article, I think it's very important to, for people to remember this. When you next see you know, the old guy or the old woman at the back of the field, they're not just shuffling along at a kind of standard old person's pace. They may actually be running for a target pace, and they it, five seconds may matter to them just as much as it matters to anybody else, because that's the difference between a successful race and an unsuccessful one. And that's certainly mm -hmm. how I was in that museum. Mm -hmm. You know, I was after I was after improving because I was coming back from injury and knee replacement and so on, and I just wanted to keep improving. And so, just getting two or three seconds off each time and doing the training that gave you that—that that was all part of the process, just as it was when you were twenty-five. I certainly know why your partner Andre doesn't do uh, long distance running on the track because it's really rather difficult to take a pee break. On it a track is, race. yeah. <laughs> That's why he likes the trails a lot more because you know, we won't go into this. But, <laughs> but, but I, I do know as a journalist that the, artic the articles that get the most hits these days are anything that relates to pee or poop. <laughs> Toilet humor still wins. But clearly, clearly, it is a subject of some interest. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so back to the book. Um, yeah. Running through our time, uh, I guess his, it has it has a commonality with uh, uh, a sort of history line with your previous book, when running made history. But it, it's very a different kind of book. So, you know, what made you decide de decide to write this book? One of the first decisions was that I considered writing a history of running. But there are two of those, and they're, they're pretty good, very thorough job, but not enthralling reading. Somehow just, just mm. kind of skimming through. A bit and, dry. And, yes, a bit, bit dry and, and not time for any of the color. And I thought, I don't really want to do another of those. Mm. Uh, I don't have to be comprehensive. What I'm interested in, what I've been interested in all my life, really, are these these stories. Uh, what is the truth of the story? And what is the best version or whatever of the story? And, and, and how, how do we tell it? And what does it mean? And I just decided to select 
the best stories and tell those properly. So you get the real colour and depth. Uh, and Liz, when you were struggling with the title of the book, uh, that's that's quite justified because that's the publisher's title. My title was much simpler. It was just Running's Greatest Stories. Oh, see, that would have been fantastic. I, I thought that 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 had that had an impact, <laughs> and that that's and that's what I believe it is. It's it's the greatest stories of Pheidippides, Spirit on Lewis, and Atalanta, and and Billy Mills and Durando Pietri, and uh, all the great stories we've all heard. We've been, every time you 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 read about running or you or you go to a seminar, you hear people telling versions of these stories. And I thought mm-hmm. I want to tell these stories. Two things: I want to tell them really well. You know, use the skills that I've I've had as um, as a professor of literature and, and specialist in the novel, skills in fiction and understanding how narrative can be presented in all the different ways and varying it, and, and and telling a good story in journalism. So tell the stories well, and then the other important thing that I was trying to do is get them right because mm-hmm. everybody has told the story. You know, so this guy ran from Marathon to Athens and then dropped down dead. Well, <laughs> that's the version I always heard. Yeah, well, and. It sounds like it was actually a lot more complicated than that when you tried to find out the real story. Yes, and, and, and that's not what actually happened. I'm quite prepared to believe it when I want to believe it. I thought it was a good story. Oh, it's a great story, and I'm happy for it to survive, but I need to know that it is a story, and I need to know that that version of the guy dropping down dead, nobody thought of that until 600 years after it actually happened. So that's yeah. like us suddenly uh-huh. discovering you know, that Shakespeare had a had a baby brother or, 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 some, or something, you know, just at this point in time. You say in the book, you know, these guys are trained messengers at the time. And for them to run 25 miles, okay, it's a task for them, but they're not going to drop down dead at the end of it. They're, they're oh, trained athletes. They're trained, you know. Absolutely right. I discussed this with Yanis Kouros, the great Greek uh-huh. ultra-distance runner, yes. the, 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 probably the best ultra-runner the world has ever seen. And he said, I do not think it possible to drop dead after running only 40 kilometers. He's hardly warmed up in that time. And <laughs> yeah, there will be some people listening to this that'll be like, what do you mean only? Like the word only doesn't belong in front of 40 kilometers. Well, no, I know that, but that, that's in Yanis's point of view. That was, the, that was the point that Alan was quite rightly making. And that's why I had a chapter, the third chapter in the book. Uh, these are not famous stories, but these are the stories of the messengers. And I wanted to give them a place because some of them will have been great runners. But of course, we don't know who they are because they were just ordinary guys. And they were running all day, every day. That's what they did for a living. And they ran in relays. And it's fascinating to see the way it was set up in all the different countries. And I got material from Peru and Japan and the Native Americans and, and India uh, and all around all around the world. They were everywhere. And when you think about it, they had to be everywhere because they were the fastest way of getting news or letters or anything. Mm. The, only, the only comparable way was by water if you were in that kind of place. If you're in a, you know, if you're in the Great Lakes or something, then you could send stuff by by water or if you're up and down a coast. But if you're crossing inland. Runners are much better than horses at, at covering those long distances because horses can't last that long. Uh, so the messengers are really important, and they're, they're, some of them are great stories. You know, and again, there's dropping down dead stories. There's a lovely, lovely Welsh story that I tell about Gitto Nithbaran, and and the, again, Liz, it's the story of how his girlfriend patted him on the back after he raised him. She patted him so hard that he dropped down dead. <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, 
Frankly, I don't think so. <laughs> and what I always like to bring is my literary perspective. We all talk metaphorically. I mean, ask any runner how they felt after a race, and they will say, oh, God, you know, I died on the fourth, fourth lap or, or, you know, two miles to the finish. I was completely dead. I was just dragging myself along. And then somebody came by and he screwed me. And, and I think, well, if somebody took all of these statements literally 2,000 years later, you get a very strange picture for what actually went on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of prolonged necrophilia or something. <laughs> uh, so it's we have we need to interpret and realize that colorful stories will always survive. And one that I quote, one of the things I'm really pleased about in this book is, I mean, there are many, many discoveries I made. One of them is the world's first piece of sports journalism, uh, which I found in an English newspaper in 1719, an actual report of a race. And what it says, a race between two footmen, and what it says is both of them ran with such fury and violence that they both dropped down for dead at the finish. Well, I didn't mean they dropped down dead at the finish. They dropped down four dead at the finish, as if they were dead. And and that's that's how these mistakes happen. And and in fact, they they raced each other again a month later. So they they weren't actually dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I found all kinds of original material like that, which throws a lot of light on just what what happened and why. And, and, and wonderful stuff, which so much of it is like exactly how we run. And so much of it is just colorful stories and quirks of human nature. Did you spend a lot of time in dusty libraries in the UK? Yes, I, did. I, I quite like spending time in, in dusty libraries. Uh, <laughs> but, but not only that, the research for the book was really very varied because it's a running book. And so some of the research, yes, was done in dusty libraries. And just for instance, at uh, Shrewsbury School in England, um, in their school library, I found these handwritten volumes of what we would call the school cross-country club. They called it the Hounds, the Royal Shrewsbury School Hunt. Uh, And these are the handwritten records of their runs going back to 1830. You know, we're we're before Queen Victoria was on the throne. And and I realized then in that library, I was holding in my hands written evidence of the very beginnings of modern running. So these are basically the first running clubs in existence. That was was the first running club in existence, that that school club. And and why why did they call them the hounds? They were sort of named after the fox and hounds chase that they they had in the UK where they would have horse riding and chase after a fox with the hounds. Exactly that, Alan. They they were imitating, their fathers were were fox hunters or hare hunters, uh, and they imitated that schoolboys went out for a run and two of them laid a trail. Uh, and the others chased after. And then, then, then the research, I mean, there's, there's the library aspect of the research, but then there's also, for a subject like running, there's the running aspect to the research because there were times that I was actually doing it. And I ran over all their courses around Shrewsbury. Uh, and there was one place I wanted to find. I wanted to find a wet ditch because uh, there was a particular story of how the, 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 he- the foxes laid the trail across a field that was shallowly covered with water how did they lay a trail? Well, they laid it going down to the water and then laid it going up the other side. But they, they did it with oh, paper or? Paper, paper, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and, and that's another bit of the story. They were at war with the headmaster of the school who wanted to stop them trespassing on, on, on farms and things. And uh, he, at one point, confiscated their 
the, the bag that they used to carry the paper in. And they were so offended by this because that was almost like a sacred object to them. He was a famous classicist and he had just published a Latin dictionary. His name was Kennedy in the Latin, the Latin, Latin grammar book. The Latin grammar was called Kennedy's Latin Primer. And I, when I first learned Latin, which I hated, I, I had to study it a hundred years later from Kennedy's Latin Primer. Well, what they did was that they got copies of his newly published Primer and they tore it up and used it as paper trail. <laughs> revenge. And, as revenge. And they completely endeared themselves to me at that, at that point, because that's what I would always have loved, loved to do. But then <laughs> they just <laughs> carrying on that line, that line of thought. So I was out there running and looking for the places they, they described in their runs. And then on another occasion, I was investigating the running footmen of around about the 1600s and 1700s in, all through Europe, and they had races against each other. And the story's always gone that they ran carrying a mace, a kind of long staff. And at the, at the top end of the staff, they had a little food, little drink and, and a hard-boiled egg or something. And it was also a sign in their office. And I thought, I'm not convinced that you can really run all day carrying a thing that long. Mm. So I, de I decided to experiment. And as I say in the book, I decided to make my experiment in New York Central Park because there are so many weirdos in the park. That, that, that's, that's, that's the only place in the world where if, a, if a, a funny, skinny, bald old runner was going along at six minute mile speed, carrying a six foot long tree branch, nobody would look twice. With a hard boiled egg on top of it. <laughs> exactly. So that was another form of research that I did. How so did that would turn out? <laughs> well, I concluded you can you can actually do it. There are various positions, you know, like you see people sometimes carrying the American or Canadian flag in marathons. It, you know, mm. it is more carried over your shoulder. But mm. I, I would, I just think there are better ways of of getting a hard boiled egg. And so I, I still don't believe it, frankly. I don't believe they ran all day. I think they may have used that mace staff in city when they're running in front of of the Lord's coach to clear the way. Uh, but I don't believe for a minute that when they ran from, from London to their aristocrat's country home, which might be 60 or 70 miles away, I don't believe for a minute they ran carrying a stupid staff all day. Yeah, I guess it would be easier just to like hold the egg in your hand and then eventually you eat it and then you don't have to carry anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stop briefly at a pub. I, I think that's one of the beauties of the book, <laughs> and I'll probably say that at the end. One of the beauties of the book is there's a story. So there's the generally accepted story. There's the research so you find out what does it really say you know does it say drop down dead or drop down for dead which means entirely different things and then there's the exper experiments and the experience and the opinions where you go out and test you know could this really have happened is there some evidence if i try to do it is it possible which all i think makes the whole thing all much more story rich yes Thank you. That, that, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to do, Alan, because I wanted to tell the stories and, and, to, and as I say, to get them right, but to make that part of the process, the getting them right, to make that a story as well. Just how did I find out? How do we test that? How do you get this information? And, and it, it comes from all kinds of sometimes coincidences, you know, because I'm a literary scholar as well as a runner. Uh, I was working on Daniel Defoe and his journalism, and that's how I found this newspaper in 1719, which Daniel Defoe almost certainly wrote. And the same with getting all the stuff about the boys at Shrewsbury School. I was there pursuing a, um, a writer called Sam, Samuel Butler. So there would be those crossovers. And then 
Yeah, you got it perfectly there because one good case of that is with this mysterious woman who supposedly ran, wanted to run the Olympic marathon in 1896. And some feminist writers yes. these days are all agitated about this and said she wanted to run and they wouldn't let her, you know, these evil mm-hmm. officials just wouldn't let her run. And, and she's become quite a kind of martyr figure. Well, I'm prepared to admire a martyr, but only if she actually was one. And I don't know that she existed. And I, I did all the checking possible in newspapers and, and then finally came up against a kind of de- dead end in, in that research. So, so I said, well, if I can't get an answer as a scholar, let me try and get an answer as a runner. The different versions say that she ran the marathon in, I think one version has four and a half hours, another version has five and a half hours. And I said, well, now two things. One, that takes some training. How would a woman, a Greek woman in 1896, get that training? If she was poor, she couldn't do the training. And if she was richer, she wouldn't, it wouldn't be proper for her to go out on the streets and run. So, so how did she do that amount of running? You can't just go out and run four and a half hours. You know, we, we all mm-hmm. know that. that's, that's mm-hmm. quite serious running. And then the other thing that nobody had asked about that story is that the Greeks actually had two trials for that first Olympic marathon. Yes. Yeah, so uh, and, and, and they dropped out something like 60 guys were left out. Mm-hmm. They had I think, 13 in the team, finally. And the slowest in the team was three and a half hours. This, remember, we're not talking about 26 miles in these days, we're talking about roughly 25. This is, this is before 80, 1908 London and the marathon getting more standardized. So what kind of justice would it have been when some stray woman showed up and said, I'd like to run the marathon to, to put her in when you've just left 50 or 60 guys off the team who run faster than she has? So, so I, I, you know, the story doesn't add up to me at all. And, and I'm quite, I'd love it to be true. We'd all like it. We all need a kind of progenitive women runner. And if we could find one who, who really did exist and was running in 1896, it would be great. But I, I, I can't find it. You know, I've tried hard and I, I'm not being skeptical or difficult. I'm just looking at how it's, where the stories come from, how they're presented, what the sources are um, and what's likely. Also, what's likely as a runner. And I can't see it. I can't see four and a half hours. Yeah, but it doesn't fit. Doesn't fit the facts. Yeah. Yeah. You you had um, just mentioned that there were uh, at the Olympic marathon thirteen competitors, um, but I from think Greece. wasn't it all from Greece? No, um, the, the thirteen from Greece, and then uh, an American, an Australian, uh, a Frenchman. So right now, uh, to get into the Olympics, I think each country can only uh, bring three per event. Yes. So how how did they manage to bring 13 from the same country? Well, because there'd never been any Olympics before. <laughs> so they, so oh, they, so they didn't know, have that role yet. Those rules didn't exist. No, those rules only brought in when the numbers increased. And I think the three per country thing didn't come in until about 1928. Okay. I, do have, I do have that in the book, but I, I and I think the date was was 1928. Uh, if you look at even 1908 and 1920, 1920, some countries have six or eight people. So did did you uh, come across like how they limited the field size and why they limited it to what it was? You know, there would have been um, 13 from one country and and then a couple more added to that. But there would have been potentially a lot more that wanted to participate. So how would they have how would they have limited it back then? Did, well, did they, it... just, 
Did they take I, all I, comers? Did they take all comers in 1896? Like, uh, well, no, it didn't because the Greeks had had these two trials in order to sort out those who were, as it were, serious runners. Hmm. Uh, and we forget that in the history of the marathon. The first marathon ever run was not the, not the 19, 1896 Olympic marathon. It was the, the the two Greek trials beforehand. So they were actually the, the precursive marathon runners. And they, I think they just thought it would be ridiculous to have some, in any all-comers race. They didn't want to make it look embarrassing or make it look as if it was just a festival. They, want, they wanted to make it a serious race. So they limited the people who, roughly speaking, could run 25 miles in three and a half hours. That's, that's, that's putting it very broadly. Um, and Spirit on Lewis, in fact, only just made the cut, who then went on and won the race. Well, won the Olympic title itself, and that's that's another great story. How how he did it, and Alan, you're talking about me bringing my understanding of running tactics and knowledge of the sport. I, there there are these various stories about how he must have cheated. He must have cut the cord, or he must have hung onto a horse's stirrup, or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't see that as anything other than arrogant Brits being very reluctant that their man didn't win and got mm. cooked and he got, <laughs> got over, over, overtaken by, by this Greek peasant. Well, it all seems to be perfectly simple. The Greek peasant was a water carrier. He'd been doing roughly 30 k's a day back and forth from his village into uh, the middle of Athens, accompanying the mules, carrying the water. So he was just on his feet so much of the time. And he also knew how to pace himself. So he'd got the miles in the legs uh, and he'd got pace judgment. And that's why he won the race. And I, I love it that it's just a quite simple matter of sensible tactics instead of mm-hmm. taking off like all like, like the track runners did. And, and they were reportedly two miles in front, but it just they were just running it as if it was a track race. And we, we all know if you've never run a marathon, then you've only run two, three Ks or five Ks or something. Well, you better beware because <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, a, there's a big bear up there. <laughs> the marathon is a whole different mm-hmm. uh, whole different beast. Yeah, so, someone's waiting with a piano to load it onto your back. Yes, around yeah. kilometer 32 or so. <laughs> yes. Sometimes earlier, then you're in real trouble if it's earlier yes. than that. <laughs> well, Spirit on Lewis knew that. He knew the terrain and he, he just ran slowly and sensibly and came through and he, he ran a perfect race. And, and he was mo- most of the way he was accompanied by another Greek. I can't see any reason to suspect that he cut the course or, or, or did anything else wrong. He just got it. He just got the race right. And that's the bit I love about it. And, mm-hmm. and you'll see recurrently in, in, in the book, you know, I, I'm interested in race tactics because I'm interested, as I said before about myself in, in, a race is about getting the best out of yourself, and a major part of that is is judging your early pace right. Especially with the marathon, I think. You know, if you if you get your pacing wrong with the marathon, you're a dead man. There's running. no hanging on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I say that to people I coach. You know, you, you one second a lap, or four or four or five seconds a mile. You know, three or four seconds a kilometer can be fatal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as it's as close as that. You just you can't afford to get it wrong. One of, one of the stories very early on in the book is the truth and the legend around Pheidippides and the origin of the concept of the marathon. I think anybody who's run a marathon has heard the story. Maybe one of the things we could do as a public service to, uh, to all our listeners is set the record completely straight because I think you basically do that. Maybe you could just 
for our listeners, you, you could do it more eloquently than I could. Just say what is the general thing that people sort of say about him, you know, arriving and dropping dead. And then what's, as far as we can tell, the real story? The story we all know is that he, he ran from uh, the battlefield at the beach of Marathon into Athens, roughly 25 miles, 40K, and announced the news of the victory. And the words used are rejoice, we conquer, uh, and drop dead. Nice story. Uh, heroic, you know, ends in a very satisfying way. Uh, I say somewhere in the book, if you want to be famous for the rest of time, well, drop dead at the end of the race. <laughs> people people love that bit. Uh, so that's the, that's the simple story. When you look into it, the actual source has a quite different story where Pheidippides was a long-distance messenger and they sent him from Athens to Sparta to try and get help from the Spartans against the invading Persians. And that's a distance of about... Uh, under best part of 200k pretty well two days of running and he went to the spartans and asked them for help and they said well we'll think about it but the full moon is coming and we can't come till after the full moon you know they were kind of hedging their bets i think and then he ran back again and the only reason that herodotus is the historian he's often known as the first historian and he put the story these stories together the only reason he tells that story is that in his version Pheidippides, the runner, met the god Pan on the way, and the god Pan gave him a message to give to the Athenians. Well, you can interpret that however you want. You can believe he actually met the god Pan. You can you can you can think it maybe the Athenian generals were were drumming up a god to to let the soldiers think that they had they had the god on on their side, whatever. Uh, but but it was it was taken seriously in in, Her- in Herodotus. But there's no reference to him then running from Marathon to Athens and, and dropping dead. That comes in another story of another battle and another runner 600 years later. And then one writer got the two stories mixed up and he talked about the runner Pheidippides who dropped dead and said, rejoice, we conquer. And then that phrase, rejoice, we conquer. Remember, we're talking about ancient Greeks here, so we've got no idea what he actually said. And I always say... He was a soldier, so what, what he's most likely to have said is, is uh, enemy in retreat, sir, permission to drop dead. <laughs> so, uh, so the is oh, sorry, the, the actual word. So he was speaking ancient Greek, and the Greek's version of what he said was ninikikamon, which means rejoice, we are victorious. And so it does have it does have that element of saying rejoice, which is rather like rather like in modern usage, have a nice day. You know, have a nice day, and then the news, or or kind of good good day, and then and then handing over the news. So it has that same kind of form. Well, the English poet Robert Browning was the first to tell the inaccurately conflated story, and he gave the the runner those wonderful words: rejoice, we conquer. It could be be joyful, we won. Have a great day. We smash them. You know, just <laughs> yeah. All kind. How however we want to interpret the Greek, the Greek. Uh, but Browning's version was "Rejoice, we conquer." It has a wonderful resonance, and that's the phrase which has passed into our language, and which people now believe. And I'm quite willing to believe it on occasion. As, as we said at the beginning, it's a terrific story. Hmm. Catherine and I both have "Rejoice, we conquer" engraved inside our wedding ring. 
So I'm not going to refute it. I'm I'm not here to be a you know cynical old scholar and say this didn't happen. I'm an interested yeah. in the facts. I love the stories, and that's why I wanted to tell the story. But I also want I also want people to know what they should believe and what they shouldn't believe. And so I set that whole chapter out to make it really accessible because big chunks of storytelling about Herodotus and so on can be quite difficult. I set that whole chapter out as an FAQ. Yes. You know, all the questions that people mm-hmm. ask ask me at seminars and things, and just made and tr- I tried in each chapter to make the story really accessible, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes using techniques from fiction, like setting the scene at Newmarket Racecourse before the race in the, the race between the two footmen, uh, or at the end of the Pheidippides chapter, I actually had Herodotus interviewing people who he could have interviewed perhaps if, if this story really was true <laughs> in fact he didn't so i made them up and i said that i said three three times yes. the full disclosure i'm making this bit up but we're trying to get to how the story came about and this is how it might have come about if you'd had a if you'd had a little boy uh, or i think a little girl actually watching the runner come through her village and that that's the scene i'm quite pleased with is getting getting exactly what that would have seen seemed like and you know i thought of writing this as a novel but I decided that's not what I really want to do. I want to just tell the story, but use some of the techniques of novel writing just to make it more interesting, provided people know what's truth and what's fiction. I think my perspective is um, it's good to know the truth, but don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. That's right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I think you, you cover both of those things. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's what I'm trying to do in the book, is let the story, have the story, but also if it is a true story, like Billy Mills or Alison Rowe, whatever, let's tell it right. And if it's if it's a story like this one, well, let's find out how the story came into this form. And the distortion of it, I'm the, cl- the, the classic terrible case of the distortion of truth, was, which I also tell, was that 1928 uh, Women's Olympic 800 metres, mm-hmm. where for decades everybody has believed that all the runners collapsed and it was so embarrassing and they were scattered all over the track and half of them dropped out and half of them collapsed and so on. And, and when I really got down to it, none of that is true. It was some some kind of inexplicable conspiracy of male journalists plus the IOC and the IAAF to get the, the women's races cut from the Olympic program. Uh, and it's a terrible piece story of, of disgraceful journalism. So the thing with that also is that um, it seems like they made this uh, sort of collapse at the finish line seem like it was just the women, but the men do that too. I mean, go to any track race and you see, you know, they finish their race, uh, even the men, and they get across the finish line and everybody's lying around on the track. So, I mean, they, they're I'm assuming that, you know, in 1928, it was the same thing. Uh, but it seemed like the the women, uh, for the women, it was a sign that they were like too weak to run endurance events. And for the men, uh, nothing was even mentioned. Yeah, I mean, seven of those women broke the, origi- the, the, the standing world record at the time. You wouldn't expect them to do anything except be completely exhausted. Well, especially some of them were inexperienced. Two of them were sprinters. They hadn't run an 800 before, uh, and so they'd be in a new experience. Absolutely right. What I did with that chapter was I started with a newspaper report that I wrote of how it should have been reported, where it really Mm. was a marvelously successful race, where the first three broke the world record, the first seven broke the ratified world record because mm-hmm. the, the latest world record was was awaiting ratification at that time that was really, and, and as far as we know it's definitely eight out of the nine finished i don't know what happened to the ninth the official results only go down to eight but the newspaper 
course, had things like 11 wretched women and five of them dropped out and five of them collapsed. Well, there weren't 11 in the race. <laughs> there were only nine in the race. So there's, the, the misreporting was, was terrible. Um, the answer to your question, Liz, I think, is not so much that women shouldn't try endurance events, but just that women are supposed to look graceful and decorative. And if they're lying on the track in a state of exhaustion, that doesn't fit that stereotype. Mm, that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, I quoted that one newspaper report describing the race when it said that the runners came into the into the arena and they skipped daintily into the infield. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, mean, I doubt it. For, for a bunch of yeah. eight hundred meter runners, that doesn't sound right to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a kind of male image of women as semi-infantile, you know, little skipping decorative, mm. semi-childlike creatures. Uh, and so when they all, well, they didn't all collapse, but but if, when, when three or four of them fell down on the track, Liz, as you said, uh, this was seen as being completely improper and it's not how people wanted women to, to look. And you said about the, you know, that it was kind of like a journalist conspiracy. And it really sounded that way when you also brought up the footage, because there was footage of the end of the race, but it was actually not the end of the women's 800 meter final. It might have been one of the heats where they yes. got some footage of one of the women collapsing. Yeah. Or... And, and that, that had been tacked on as if it was the finish of the race. So there was a, there was a lot of distortion going on. And, and I spent hours looking at playing and replaying and stop, start, stop, start, you know, that, that footage to try and figure out exactly what happened. How did the winner and the second place getter be able to stand in, on the infield alongside the officials because you can recognize them. Uh, Radka had a particular kind of haircut that you can recognize from behind and you can recognize the Japanese from behind. How did they get there in three seconds? Um, and then I arrived, the only explanation is that this isn't the final we're looking at at all. It's actually the heat the day before when they did they did finish further ahead. And so then they could have been standing where they were. And yes, uh, another, I make exactly the point that you do, Liz, when I say that in the men's 5,000 meters in those same Olympics, the great Pavo Nurmi, when he finished in second place, one of the few races he lost in the Olympics, he finished in second place and he fell down on the infield in a state of exhaustion. So it's not, it's, it's just this image that prevailed at that time that women should be decorative. And if I can just digress, what I say these days about old people like me racing is that something of that same prejudice prevails. People don't like to see old people running because it doesn't look right. Hmm. Uh, it looks it looks embarrassing. They don't want to see old people exhausted. I ran a race uh, just a few days ago lo- locally here in New York State, and it was it was uh, to raise money for the local fire and rescue department. Well, after the race, you know, all these big hulking, very nice and kind rescue guys, you know, they saw this white-haired, crumpled, gasping old man covered covered himself. (laughs) It made their day, you know. They they wanted to carry carry me off, and they kept rushing over and saying, are you all right, sir? (laughs) So it's something of that same thing. That same prejudice exists now towards old people that it doesn't look right for us to engage in something which is so effortful. And hopefully that means if history repeats itself, that one day it won't be so, you know, maybe one day it will be more acceptable because, I mean, people are living longer and longer. So it's normal that, you know, they would 
they would continue doing sports later and later as time goes on. Yes. Because yes. you can't, if, you know, people can't just sit on the couch. Like. And an, another, key, another key point that links back to that 1928 story is when I tell the story of the 1984 Women's Marathon uh, and Joan Benoit Samuelson and Greta Weitz running, you know, so superbly showing that women can mm -hmm. be magnificent and heroic. Mm -hmm. And then Gabrielle Anderson, she's the, the Swiss in a state of near exhaustion, staggering and reeling all over the track. And yet this time people didn't say she shouldn't have done it. She shouldn't be allowed. It doesn't look right. And I said, that's the moment, it seems, when yeah. women had claimed the right, the way I put it, is they claimed the right to get exhausted in public. But that was 1984. That was 1984. Oh, that was a okay. long time. It's unbelievable yeah. for me because the, the counterpoint story in the male, the male marathon happens in 1908 at the London Olympics with um, Durando Pietri and his inability to get around the last lap of the marathon and the drama that ensues and the wonderful boom in marathon running that occurs because of that. Because there's sort of like, oh, what drama? Oh, fantastic spectacle. And we need to have more of this. And then suddenly there's a whole um, circus of marathon running happening afterwards in, in New York. And we hear we see the stories of that. And we can imagine it's sort of Barnum and Bailey type uh, thing that happens afterwards with... Uh, with uh, show ponies uh, running yeah. uh, indoors on oh, marathons yeah, in I, I, New York. I, I, and that's in 1908, but it takes till 1984 for that to be given to the ladies. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, bands play, that's one of my favorite chapters. I call it Marathon Mania, yeah. uh, which, which is a phrase from the British report on the Olympics in 1908. And they rather disapproving. Marathon Mania has broken out all around the world. You yes. See. The, the report says uh and yes they had uh, they, marathons were indoors huge crowds betting of course uh rival they had bands playing an irish band and an italian band playing rival music because the races between uh, johnny hayes irish american and durando pietri italian uh the italians and the irish in the crowd all beating each other up and, and <laughs> And the police having to, <laughs> police having to trunchen them apart, and oh, it's a wonderful colour, colourful stuff. And you're right about the Barnum Bailey. It was exactly that they had when Tom Longboat was running, the Canadian uh, First First Nations Canadian. They they had a somebody wearing you know full feathers and and uh, and war paint doing doing war chants on the inside of the track to encourage him along and just add to add to the spectacle so yes that was all great entertainment and it was an, an amazing boom in marathon running not so much in the way our boom was or is in terms of participation but in terms of marathon as a spectator sport yeah it seemed to be more like a boxing a high-end boxing match yes. or or a, i guess these days a ufc fight mm. you know where there are two great contestants Yes, and they're going to square off against each other, and it was exactly yeah. that. And, and then the next stage was one of the, the best episodes in that story. Is is uh, when when the, the the promoter Pat Powers had the idea of getting six of the top runners in the world together. Previously, all the races had been match races, head to head, hmm. like a boxing match. And so he got six in one race, which of course we're used to. But that was that was a new idea to them. 
uh, for, for, for marathon. Those have been all all just um, just match events. And then, of course, it was won by a complete outsider. And I won't spoil that story because it's a very good story. <laughs> get get the book and read it. It's worth mm-hmm. it just for that. Yeah, that was a good story. Terrific stories there. It was just how, how the complete outsider comes in and wins that big one and, and, and all the different personalities. Wonderful international story where you've got the ultimate mm-hmm. Italian and the ultimate Canadian First Nations and you've got the, the very proper, upright Englishman, Alf Shrub, and you've got a couple of Irish Americans and all the little boys in New York all cheered for them and wonderful mob scene stuff. And a couple of great races because at that time people would get their pacing completely wrong so they would look like they were far and away going to be the winner and then fade towards the end and get overtaken so they would make for great uh, spectator sport. Well, and with any luck, they would collapse. Yes. And, and nearly die. And, uh, yeah. Yes. And that's what the spectators liked. So then they would come back for more of that. That's what they really wanted. And and is that is that now dead? Well, my my late brother for a long time was the press officer of the TT Riders Association in England. And he was constantly dealing with journalist inquiries about the deaths in motorcycle racing. This, the interest is still there. <laughs> okay. We're, we are a strange, macabre pe- race, the, the humans, and, and, and we get interested in, in, in morbid and spectacular deaths. And, and I guess, um, you know, with the advent of the Olympics and the Olympics sort of occurring and becoming more popular in the early 1900s, that seemed to sort of kill the sort of professional match running a little bit. And then, then there's suddenly... You know, a huge opposition between amateur runners, because you were only allowed to run in the Olympics if you were not taking any money for your sport, um, versus, you know, prize runners. And prize runners sort of became despised, it seemed. Yeah, that's 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 very perceptive. You've got that. That's one of the kind of sub themes of the book, Alan, that, that story. And I tell it fairly explicitly, I think, at the end of that 1909 chapter. Uh, just how how that division happened, and and how really the the sport of track and field, especially, and one of the, some other sports, Olympic sports, they really got taken over, and it was partly that ideal of amateurism, because behind that there was a kind of class ideal that um, they really wanted to keep out just working class guys if they could, and it was much harder for somebody who's in a manual job to run for nothing than it was for some somebody who's at uh, mm. an Ivy, Ivy League university. And so there was definitely a kind of element of class restriction and, and class control behind the, the amateur professional. That wasn't all there was to it, but that was part of the story. And that's, um, that's something I, I regret. And that's why part of my job as a historian is to try and set the record right and try and tell the story of these guys who are professionals. And they, they, no, they're not evil. They were, they were, they were good, good, serious runners, and they're running for prize money. Sure, why shouldn't they run for prize money? Mm-hmm. What, what's Durando Pietri going to do? He was a cake maker in Carpi um, in, in Italy. He would never have had two lure to rub together his whole life, and suddenly he could make enough money to buy a hotel and you know set himself up in business and. We don't see anything wrong in that, but 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 they they did, and and, and I, I I wanted to kind of get the perspective on it and make the point that until now or very recently, all the histories have been about the amateur sport, hmm. and that's partly why I had that chapter about the messengers because the histories of running have gone from ancient Greece and suddenly there's this great gulp and a great leap 
and suddenly you're in 1896 in the first Olympics. Well, just a minute. <laughs> you know, people didn't stop running for 2,000 years, you know, is, is my view. So, so let's see if we can find out what did happen in, in those times. And, and none of the histories reported on the running footmen because they were running for money. Most of the money went, of course, to their employers. The footmen mm-hmm. just like, were treated just like a racehorse or something. But no doubt they were putting some betting money on. But yeah, that, that's that's a major part of the story. Some somebody said to me, "You seem to have a lot of sympathy for the underdog and and people who, who don't normally get much heroic treatment." And I said, "Well, yeah, I think that's that's maybe true because I've wanted to set that record right and look mm-hmm. at people like like the running footman. Look at look at Helen Fury Sykes or or, or look at you know Philippides if you like, who's just a regular old day runner who." That was his job to carry messages around for the army. And look at those guys as well, at, at, at Johnny Hayes and Tom Longboat. Tom Longboat's a wonderful story, you know, the, the great Canadian runner. We, we, all, we all accept him now, but at that time, he ran into a lot of prejudice and disapproval. The Brits really didn't like him because they convinced themselves that he was taking money as a professional. Mm. So he shouldn't have been allowed to run in the, in, in the Olympics. But really what really what they were doing was by restricting it to a certain class, it's it's almost like maybe winning loses its value a little bit because, you know, runners, they tend to want to compete against people that are better than them because that'll bring out the best in, you know, in ourselves. And by restricting it to a certain class, like there is a whole, all of these other people that could run much, much faster, maybe, but that, you know, they were excluded because they were taking money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And that's why I wanted to retell the history more fully, which gives, as it were, equal opportunity in history to everybody who ever ran well, as far as we can find the records. And that's, that's one major job that I've tried to do in this book. One of the things that I noticed is, you know, a lot of the stories, I knew something about it, not so much the running footmen and those kind of things, but more of the sort of modern running history, you know, the last century. I knew something about it, but on reading the chapter, I would find out all kinds of other things because you remember the key character or the key story or the key element. But what you do is reveal some other things. In particular, a good example of that was... Uh, your chapter on the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Um, Because if you take that and you talk to runners about that, they'll say, well, Jesse Owens, you know, snubbing snubbing, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, and the Nazi regime by a black guy taking out the gold medals. And that is in itself a fantastic story and superbly well told by itself. But then you tell us about Jack Loverstock. Lovelock. And uh, Son Ki Chung, the, yes. the Korean. I didn't know anything about those people. I didn't even know they were at the uh, the Berlin Olympics. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more about those guys. I, I'd I'd love to. I, Jack Lovelock, of course. If you were a New Zealander, you'd know about Jack Lovelock because he won New Zealand's first track gold medal, and they did yeah. it winning winning a world record. So Jack Lovelock is an almost godlike figure in in New Zealand. Well, you know that I I have an Australian <laughs> citizenship, so he's probably he's probably erased from the records in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but by the way, just recently in the in the exhibit that that is the World Athletics. Heritage exhibit that's on at the uh, that was on at the Eugene World Championships. I got real wobbly knees because they had Herb Elliott's singlet. Oh, oh very nice. That, that, that he that he wore when he set the world record. He did what Jack Lovelock 
did, the only two people ever to have done it, break the world record, winning the Olympic record, winning the Olympics gold medal, gold medal. for 1500 meters. Uh, so, and, and I chose those three uh, because each of Jesse Owens, Jack Lovelock, and Son Kichung, because each of them is a great story in themselves, and also for that same um, that that same kind of sub theme of wanting to give recognition to people who were not you know the most glamorous, the most the, the, the most famous, mm-hmm. the most upper, the most upper crust, uh, and and they're, and they're all complex, complex and interesting stories. And and you know Lovelock actually came from very poor origins. He got he got himself a Rhodes scholarship to Oxford, but that was purely on brains and became a very good uh, research doctor just jesse owens and, and the whole my whole take on jesse owens and where i tried to say something new about him is that uh, people have always admired him as a superb athlete well in a way i don't want to put this too strongly but in a way they were just that's just subscribing to the kind of nazi presentation of him which where he was compared to the wild animal who was so good at jumping in an mm. uncontrolled way that's actually not true if you look at jesse owens's the record of his performances at those he was very very smart he was a tactically absolutely astute he i think i counted i forget the exact number something like he took something like 24 attempts counting each heat in each event yes. and each jump in the long jump and, it, and he and there was only in one of those 24 did he put a foot wrong everything else was absolutely impeccable wow uh, that's pretty amazing when he got the inside lane on a wet day in, in the hundred in the hundred meters and jesse owens i think has been been underestimated for his sheer kind of sporting intelligence and, and acumen and son kechong was a korean who uh, i always thought was a japanese because he ran for japan because Korea was under Japanese um, occupation at that time, and Korea was treated as, as really just a kind of inferior part of Japan. Uh, but that again is a more complex story because the Japanese at least gave him and the other, one of the others on the on the team the opportunity to be to be runners and took them and selected them. And in that race, the first and third were both uh, Korean Koreans running for Japan. So that, that makes, makes a complex story. So yeah, so I wanted to told aspects of those Olympics that weren't weren't well known and and uh, and also see them what's always annoyed me about those Olympics I'm, I'm not much of a nationalist and, and I think this those are the games in which nationalism really just went crazy uh, under under the Nazis and I like those three stories because they were just really individual guys who made it in their own terms and turned running into a form of individual art that, that's the way I want to say it. Not, not something which is purely done for the sake of the nation and the glory and the flag and all that stuff, but because it's, it's a challenging occupation which deserves to be done supremely well. And they, that's, that's how each of them did it. It was Jack Lovelock who, said, who called his race an artistic creation. Uh, and I believe that's true of, of all of them. Jesse Owens' races are artistic creations, and so is uh, Son Kichung's. But great stories and and just a different take on on that event. I was actually very sad to know that Jesse Owens like ended up really not making it in in general life. Like it just seemed like he was, you know, outside of running in running. He was such a god and outside of running like he had a hard time feeding his family because obviously he had to be an amateur and then he took money at some point and then he couldn't go to the he couldn't race anymore i just felt like poor guy and he was just you know he's supposed to be this this god and he's 
pretty much, you know, seen that way. He's, he's a hero. He's won four gold medals at the Olympics and um, he couldn't even provide for his family. So he, it's, it's almost like he gave, gave up a lot. Absolutely. And, and, the, and the people running the sport were so hypocritical that they would then really criticize him and threaten to ban him because he declined to go and run for America in some international event because he couldn't afford the time off work. <laughs> uh, and so yeah. then he's seen as, as being, even though they weren't going to pay him anything for doing it. And so that, that, that was that whole hypocrisy of, of amateurism where the people running the sport expected everybody to do it without any pay. But how are you going to, how can you do it without any pay? Uh, and you can be a hero, but then they're going to drop you on the trash heap the next day. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I wanted to bring out those stories. It's, on the whole, it's a very positive book, but there are some about about running because I, I'm positive about running and I believe it is something which is inspiring and and, and, and these stories help, help us all to understand the significance of what we're doing every time we go out for a run because we're all part of the same story. But then at the same time, it's a human activity and so there are sad stories as well. There are people, people like, just, like the ending of, of, of Jesse Owens. Yeah, he could have been born in another, you know, decade, and it would have been. He would have been Usain Bolt, basically. Exactly. Usain Bolt. He would have been. He would have been Usain Bolt, and and he would have made a lot of money, and deservedly so. And one of the one of the really great things about being in Eugene last week at the World Championships was just looking around me, and I thought, well, here for perhaps the first time ever, really in my whole life, I'm seeing a genuinely multiracial culture where people are mixing on absolutely equal terms. The only way in which people are distinguished in that community is those who are faster than others. <laughs> and so the, the big heroes are, are Jackie Joyner, Kersey, or, or, or Usain Bolt, or, mm-hmm. or whoever. Mm-hmm. Color, caste, religion, anything else has absolutely no part in it at all. And, and I, lo- I love that. Did I read in your book that you actually met Roger Bannister a few days before he made his world record attempt? Or was I reading it wrong? No, no, you read it right. It wasn't a few days. I wasn't a little boy. I was a young teenager, about 14, I think. And I saw him run a three-quarter mile time trial and got his autograph. So, yes, so I, if you count that as meeting, and you were these days, you get a selfie with him and then you'd show it to all your friends and say, I met Roger Bannister, you mm. know, even, even though you hadn't exchanged any words other than all it was so nice meeting you uh yes so i did but then i i did meet him several times afterwards in in later life uh and i like to tell the story of how on one occasion i told him that just at the time of his four minute mile uh i was given a new kitten uh, and i named i named the kitten little tabby kitten i named it banister and i told him as i told him i named a cat after him and and he didn't seem nearly as impressed as i thought he should have been i should have been honored (laughs) i think he should have been honored I thought so. For me, there's no higher honour. <laughs> yeah, just just for reference, my dog is called Killian after Killian Jornet, the trail runner. Exactly. Well, that's good. Uh, would it be Would it be sort of fair to say, looking looking at the facts and the data, that it could have very easily have been John Landy and not um, Roger Bannister that broke the four minute mile and went down into the history books forever. He seemed to be the guy who was probably, if you were a betting man, he would have the shortest odds. He, he was the yeah. one with the world record eventually and seemed to be the man. I tried in that chapter to, again, to tell that story in a different way because it's almost always been told very Bannister-centric. 
mm-hmm. as if there was a kind of inevitability about him getting yeah. it, and it, and it was right and proper. And in in some ways, it was. It, it does now seem as right and proper because Britain so much needed a a, a pure white hero at that date. Um, but yes, the reality is, um, Landy was at least as worthy a hero as as, as Bannister. He was going really close, despite the fact he was having to do most of it on grass tracks in Australia and, and, and in an Australian summer. And the, 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 the occasion that I always go back to, though Landy himself would never have kind of permitted this, is when he, he was running on a grass field and, and it had been carefully mown. Um, but he trod on a, a football stud or sprig or whatever, whatever word you use, cleat. Uh, cleat. Yes, it had come loose from a boot uh, in the previous winter and was lying there with the nails upwards. And and so he ran the rest of the race. He ran three laps with these nails in his foot. And he would never have said, you know, that's why I didn't do it, because he just he he would not permit that kind of speculation. He was such such a such a genuinely modest and nice man. But how close can you go? And he 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 was only a second or two outside, and he showed his capability because when he did. He did get to Europe and compete on the proper, a really good cinder track in Finnish conditions a month after Bannister. He, he, he ran a second faster than Bannister did. So, yes, I think Landy is a hero, and, and, but also so is West Santee. I think Americans could well feel deprived. And in that case, the problem was not so much the, the, the quality of, of, of the track or the temperature, but, but the American system where points, inter-college po- points are so important that a good runner like Santee had to run three races in one day. And, and I found one day mm-hmm. when he did run an extraordinary fast mile, but he'd also run an 800 meters and a four by 400 relay or something. And if he'd only done the one race on that day, maybe he would have got it. I just saw it as more of a composite effort, you know, the three of them and just all working. Now we've got this new term a virtual race, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we all had during, during COVID. Yeah. And you got mm-hmm. one guy in Australia in January and February, the Australian summer, and another one in America in the college track season uh, in May and April and May, and another guy in England in the English season. You know, thousands of mi- miles apart, and uh, actually they they're actually conducting this intense race. And just exactly which one took it well, is going to be partly a matter of chance and partly a matter of the fact that Bannister was really single-minded and he did he did get it figured out and. Uh, maybe if Landy had had Bannister's kind of inner ruthlessness, um, he might have got it first. But it's a great story. And, and Bannister had Chataway and Brescia as well, who were made for the task as well to, to help him and through. And, and did, the, did the task perfectly and, yeah. and, and pushed the regulations to the limit, let's say, mm. <laughs> in, term, in terms yeah. of taking. The, the superb, one of the superb things in, in, the, in that chapter is the fact that suddenly I suddenly realized that there's no electronic timing. Of course there isn't in 1954. And, yes. and the timing is done by stopwatch, and then you have to have several stopwatches, and then the judges have to confer. So everybody's waiting, and I kind of forgotten all about that. <laughs> uh, everybody's waiting for the announcement. You know, you yeah. make it and you go, has he done it? Has he not done it? And then you've got to wait for the announcer. And also, they, yeah, they, they take the average of the times, which that also is like, well, if one person hit their stopwatch just too late, like that could be the difference between tipping your average time yeah. to the wrong side of the four minutes, which it, it is actually more, more complex than that, Liz, because if, if, I've, if I've got it right, I, I never was a timekeeper. I wasn't good at that. I, I was always the announcer. Um, 
but I think they had four watches and they would eliminate the time that was most discrepant. So in other words, if there was if there was one that was like a tenth out the, from the others, they would eliminate that one. And then they take the average of the remaining three. That's that's how it was done. Okay. So <laughs> So someone steps up to the microphone or makes a loud announcement of what the result is. The referee has to sign it. Yeah. And then then that gets passed to the announcer, carried by a runner or actually the way it was probably done and, and I had this system at one stadium where I used to do the announcing. We had a, a, a paper clip, a big bulldog clip on the end of a piece of string. And the officials would sign off the result and a runner would put the piece of paper in, in our bulldog and jerk the string. And we'd know this. And then we'd pull it out hand over hand and then read it over the over the PA. Oh, wow. That's a, the suspense. I mean, <laughs> if you're the runner that just wanted wants to know if you got under four minutes, I, I can't imagine like those minutes that you're waiting must be. Well, well the great thing about that one was it was that Norris McWhorter, who was the announcer, obviously had a real sense of drama. I mean, he was a, he was an Oxford man. Norris but, McWhorter, the Norris McWhorter from the Guinness Book of Records. Yes, yes, okay. yes. There were twin, twin brothers, Norris yeah, and Ross. Ross. He was the announcer, and he the way he read it was, he said, he read the result. He said, Roger, and, and for, in first place, R.G.B. Bannister, in a time which, subject to ratification, will be... A you know English native English or English all comers British Commonwealth and world record. So you, you, the crowd has had to go through all of that <laughs> pomp and ceremony. <laughs> yes, exactly. Done that, and then leaving a pause, and then he said, "Time three. And of course, they never heard the rest of it because yeah, it begins the, with three. They know mm-hmm. it's been achieved. And that's and one of the questions I asked. Alan, and this is a way of answering your your question: Is would that word three have been so potent if it had been spoken in Finnish? In other words, when John Landy did it a month later, if okay. Bannister hadn't done that, one. yeah, I mean, I think it would, but but it it kind of it shows how much we do mythologize things. You know, we've got again, this is a, it's a great story. It's a great story, and and poor old Landy has been kind of relegated to the fringe of it. And I just wanted to bring him and West Santi back closer to the middle of it. Keep the great story, keep the three, keep the mm. keep all the business of the flag on the church and Bannister waiting to see if the wind would drop and, and all of that, which, which he probably made a great deal of. But then also tell the full story and try and get it more right and more, and more fair to all three of them. Mm-hmm. I think the photograph, I think you make a point of it, the photograph of Bannister um, breaking the line basically at the end of that race is one of the the most iconic photographs of of running certainly of of, of world sport yes yeah. and 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 actually when uh, i think it was time life did a book for the for the millennium and they they did the greatest photographs of the 20th century and the only three photographs of sport that were included in that book were Roger Bannister breaking the tape and the woman in about 1917 who threw herself a suffragette protester and she threw threw herself under the king's horse in the derby race in england uh, and that was caught on her and, and died yes uh, as, a, as a martyr for the for the feminist cause that one and my wife catherine switzer being attacked by the bad-tempered scotsman in the in the in the boston mm-hmm. marathon in 1967 yes. those are the only three sports photographs wow how wonderful so we did actually, on one occasion, Catherine and I met Roger Bannister 
together. We didn't talk about the cat that time. <laughs> <laughs> I discovered that was, that was not a great subject. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure it was a great cat too. But... <laughs> he was, he was a wonderful cat. Very fast. Liz loves all cats. I love cats. Yeah. So um, I, I guess since, you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, liking to bring out positive stories my favorite chapter was the one about Alison Rowe and I think it's just because she seemed to be so positive and it's not because everything went her way um, even though like she was kind of portrayed as this sort of fantastic female athlete that she had like everything going for her like her looks and everything um, she you described her as looking kind of like a movie star tall and blonde and and good looking uh, but you know things didn't always go as planned for her um, she didn't have a very long elite career in the end. And, you know, even though things didn't go the way that she maybe would have liked, she's still very positive, or it seems like, and she's still running today. First question would be, why did you choose her? Because there are probably other similar stories of people who, uh, you know, maybe didn't have as long a career as they should have, or people that... Um, just don't always have good luck, but manage to stay positive. So how did you pick Alison's story? That was a, a late addition to the book. I'm, I'm glad you like it because I think it's, it's, it's a very good chapter, both in itself and for what it does for the book. Uh, I was looking at the book as a whole, which ended with, with the previous chapter, which was um, the Joan Benoit 1894, I'm sorry, 1984 um, Olympic marathon. And I felt the book was a bit light it started, um, Alan left out when he said it starts with Pheidippides. It doesn't, actually. It starts it's with, with Atalanta. Atalanta, which go, which goes before that. And the, the, the kind of mythological woman, woman runner. And I had recently written something about, about Alison. I think it was for, some, for something like her 60th birthday or an anniversary of her win at Boston or something. And had talked to her again. We're, we're not close friends, but we're on a New Zealand team together and we see each other often and we've stayed, Catherine and I have stayed in her and Alan's house and, and, and so on. So, so we're kind of good Kiwi running mates. And it suddenly dawned on me that Alison was so much like Atalanta in, in, in that she combined great good looks, great grace and feminine qualities uh, with strength and power. Uh, and I thought it would make a really nice wrap-up for the book if I tell, tell Alison's story as a second Atalanta. And the book also, one problem with writing running history these days is more than half of our runners are women, but the stories are predominantly male. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, not, that's not prejudice, it's just that the stories are predominantly male. That's all there is to it. Women were not running, so for, what, for whatever reason. So... My book is something like, you know, 11 men to three women or something. Or, and I wanted to re redress that balance. I'd got Atalanta and I'd got Joan Benoit and I got the 1928 story. Yes, so there were three. So I wanted to add another woman's story. And, and, and then the other reasons, Liz, are, the, are that Alison, she's actually a mo very modest person. And she's the only one of the, that great pioneer generation of women marathon runners who hasn't done her own book. Greta Weitz, Joan Benoit, Lorraine Moller, Anne Ordain, they've all done their own books. Alison never has. And, and I thought, well, it's, she really should be, her story should be recorded and put, it, put in book form. And so th those are the reasons why, why. And also, I have a private 
agenda as well, which is that um, I've always tried to sneak in a New Zealand element or two here and there. <laughs> um, and so in this book, I got I, I popped in Jack Lovelock uh, and Alison Rowe because you know that's uh, I've I've got a re- I've got a readership there, and, and and that's 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 a culture that that I'm I'm part of, and so I want to make that always part of what I do. I see myself as essentially an international writer, and I think that's. That's one of my strengths is that most most writers are local, essentially, uh, whereas I'm essentially international. Uh, but I'll always have a New Zealand element. And so Alison gave me another another bit of that. Th- those are really the three answers to that question, I think, Liz, but I'm, I'm glad you like it. And I, re- I tried hard to capture um, her rather elusive personality, where she, where she does seem in some ways slightly out to lunch. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's kind of so sweet and a bit ditzy. And she wanted just everything to be, you know, kind of no pressure. That's sort of yes. the, the the feeling and, that I got. And yet, in some way, when you got her in those races, she was an absolute demon. I mean, she, mm. she was totally focused, and she ran those races like a tank or something. I mean, she was just astonishing with the strength and power and focus and concentration of it. And I'm intrigued by how those things go together. I mean, another case of that, if you like, would be Billy Rogers, you know, who really is you know, scatterbrained and out to lunch and sweetest person on earth to get him in a race and he's an absolute killer. <laughs> so, so it's it's an aspect of running and, and running and the human personality that interests yeah. me. And Alison, Alison fitted that very nicely. You got me thinking a little bit about, oh, if I, if I was writing a book like this, who would I put into a chapter? And in fact, the only, the only story I came out with was, you know, there's one dear to my heart, which is Paula Ratcliffe and uh, her fourth place at the 2000 Olympic 10,000 meters. So she has this phenomenal, almost unbeatable world record in the marathon that went on forever, but she couldn't win the 4,000 and is one of the most glorious failures um, to podium that I've ever seen. I, I, I would agree with that. I didn't put, put Paula in because I'd done a chapter on her in my previous book, which was more modern running history. The difference between the two books is that the previous one started as a history of the modern running movement and 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 it and it, and it is yeah. it still is that to a great extent i focused on decided eventually to focus on particular events to tell that story but it's a it's modern running basically from this one is, is not personal history it's research history and yes. so almost almost everything is is before my lifetime um in this case is there anybody that you um have either thought after after having written the book or oh, I, I wish i'd put that in as a chapter or a story or were left off because, you know, this book was too big. Like, would you like to give them an honorable mention? I mean, in, in a way, this is going to sound totally biased and, and I suppose it's part, it's partly biased, but only partly. One of the, one of the great stories in running is, is my wife, Catherine's story. Absolutely. And I went back and forth about whether to try and do that or not. And eventually I didn't, and I explained why in, in the introduction somewhere. It's because mm-hmm. she's told it very well. And one of my rules for this book was that I was only going to put in things where I could add something mm-hmm. to, to the story as it's, as it's it, what the provenance is at the minute, how, it, how it's been told. There are plenty of books about Bannister. I felt I could still add something to Bannister. There's mm-hmm. plenty of accounts of the Billy Mills race. I felt I could add something to that. With Catherine's, um, and obviously I probably understand her better than anybody does, but, and the time might come when it's appropriate for me to tell that story, but somehow it didn't, it didn't feel right. But that would be the one that I most regret, I think. And then, of course, like, 
like you, Alan. I mean, I, I love Paula and and and, and uh, admire her immensely. And that race when she was fourth broke my heart. And, and mm. as as the as her Olympic failures did, uh, and and she's managed to be one of the greatest athletes of all time, like Ron Clark, uh, without without ever winning. A major, um, uh, well, she did win the world cha- world world championship. I better be quick on that, <laughs> otherwise I'll be getting indignant phone calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were there were others, um, but I felt no familiar ground. Ron Hill was somebody I knew well and and wrote obituaries on, and and his was a great story. Uh, but I didn't think I had enough that was new to to add to to do it. So 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 that that was the cry. I needed I needed it to be first of all a great story and second that I had some new perspective that I could add to it. Well, I guess there's plenty of material left over for the next book. Yes. The pressure on me seems to be to, to, <laughs> to get into the geriatric thing and <laughs> I better get it done while I've still got my marbles. <laughs> You're always up to something because, you know, you were writing this book and you managed to get a over 80 record. You're still running. Um, I don't know if you want to if you want to share if there's anything else that you're that you're doing right now or that you plan to do. Only in the running way, in, in, write, in writing terms, uh, really, most of my energies this year are going into talking and promoting this book. In various in various ways and kind of re rehashing it and, and and writing about it in some cases doing excerpts uh canadian running magazine for instance very kindly ran mm-hmm. a nice excerpt chapter uh other publications have done that uh we're going to um england in in the fall for london marathon time and i hope the book isn't available there yet I and mean, you can get it on on mail order amazon and things but it's not in bookstores in england yet mm-hmm. uh, but i hope it will be by then and i might well done do some promotional stuff and certainly some writing about it which is the cut which is what i most like to do you know write write chapters write excerpts write something which draws attention to the book but but doesn't necessarily mean i've got to go and you know front, mm-hmm. front up <laughs> so that that's where most of the energy is and and then i you know, i certainly would like to do Plenty more writing, but um, no particular plans that I'm, I'm that are far enough on for me to reveal as yet. That's fair. How about running wise? Any uh, records that you've got your eye on that you're almost uh, you've almost attained or you think are within your reach? Oh, I, I don't know about record, but um, we're also going back to our home in New Zealand for three weeks. That's if that's if COVID lets us. Mm-hmm. We're going there in in the middle of August for, for a variety of reasons, you know, to to see see family and friends and check on our house and things like that. But just by a fortunate coincidence, the Wellington and New Zealand Road Championships are on in the weeks when we're there, and 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 I have an old rival. In the, in the over 80 grade. <laughs> it's on. So it's going down. This, this is, you know, Co- Cohen Ovet fades into insignificance. Like yes. With these, two, with these two 83-year-olds. <laughs> okay, fantastic stuff. So um, if people want to follow you, uh, Roger, and sort of, are you a, are you a social media person? Yes, I, I do stuff on Facebook. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I really only only put stuff on relating to my running writing okay or, or to my racing sometimes mm-hmm. uh i'm not an i don't put what i have for breakfast every day or anything like that on facebook but it's always related to to running 
Oh, you keep that a secret, I guess, so that your rivals. Yeah, nutrition is an important doing. aspect. It could give you the edge. <laughs> I do that about about twice a week on Facebook. Okay. Uh, I've, I'm due to put something up about an article that I've just had published in Dutch. Oh wow! Interesting. A very good Dutch magazine called Mystical Miles, and and I did an art that they they're really interested in, oh, in the environment, the kind of the culture of running and the. Mm -hmm. Environmental aspects of running, and so I did a piece for them a few issues back about Wimbledon Common in England, and in this issue I've done a piece about the the Waiatarua course in New Zealand, the famous course that all of Arthur Lydiard's athletes trained on in the 1960s through the Waitakere Hills outside Auckland, and, and because it's something which is of mythic value. You know, you've heard of Pree's Trail in Oregon, yeah. in, in Eugene, which, which is where I ran last week. Well, the, the Waitarua is the, is, is the New Zealand equivalent, and so I've done this chapter about that. So I, I'm going to keep on doing that kind of writing. Good stuff. Uh, but but I'm, just, it's, I'm just doing that at the minute ra rather than working on a, on a book. Actually, you mentioned the, um, you know, environmental, how the Dutch are interested in that. I think that's pretty fascinating because there were a few years ago now, I think probably it was before the pandemic. I had read this article that there was some company that um, had come out with these edible uh, like kind of capsules of juice. So instead of having those little cups that, you know, everybody throws around on the ground and then the volunteers all need to pick them up after the race, they'd have these little, like little, it reminded me of, you know, when you put, when you have a dishwasher and you buy those little cubes, that's what it reminded me of. But mm. the uh, the outside was like made out of some kind of seaweed or something. That's what the article yeah. was about. And it talked about races trying to be more environmentally friendly because there is a lot of waste with all the cups and everything. So there's a whole, there's a whole organization. I met again one, one person involved with it called Keith Peters, uh, who's, who, who are looking at in, in uh, conservation issues with running. The best idea was in my previous book. I had a chapter in, in When Running Made History. I had a chapter about running and the environment and my idea was edible t-shirts oh <laughs> but yeah that that could that could work yes well you see yeah. we, we all have drawers and drawers and drawers full of full of far more t-shirts than we could possibly wear our whole life yeah if they, if they made t-shirts so that they're edible uh then that you would get fuel during the run and then it would have two uses that was a way of making, it was a slightly mischievous way of making the point about the need for, for running as an industry to become more conservation conscious. But I like the idea of edible t-shirts. On that note, maybe I'll just give a, a you know, my summary thoughts on the book and, and pass to Liz and then we'll, we'll have trial. Basically, it's a chock full book of great stories from running history told by a great storyteller. You know, the examples I gave is, did you know that the that seven of the runners in the first women's Olympic 800 meters broke the ratified world record? Or that Roger Bannister's sub-four-minute mile was recorded manually by stopwatches, which were then averaged out? Um, these are not things that really occur to you. So there's fantastic research to get to the truth of the matter, like the real story of Pheidippides, for example. Roger clearly has a clear passion for running. You know, look how he's still running now, for example, still loves it. Um, as an example to all of us. Well, I like as well, probably because of our English commonality as the dry sense of humor mixed in. I think I think there was one story in there somewhere where uh, runners were promised, the first 15 runners or something were promised cups, silver cups or something, and then they decided against it. And then there was a huge protest. Um, <laughs> where are our cups? We want our cups. We ran the down race. Give us our cups. And then, then you have in brackets afterwards, brackets, 
do not get in the way in between runners and their bling close brackets which is a superbly sort of understated way of bringing it back to modern humor fantastic stuff um one thing we didn't mention was in fact there's a whole series of photographs in the in the book as well which are some historical photographs to complement the stories um the one the one of Roger Bannister is I guess the the best known one but there are there's some others in there which is always fun I like that in in, in books so Overall, a great read, you know, a good compliment to When Running Makes History to some extent. Um, and, uh, you know, we wait we, we wait with bed breath for the third installment because, you know, there, as the Quebec say, il n'y a jamais deux sans toi. Uh, there are never, there's never two without third. Yeah. Everything comes in threes, I think the English say. Mm-hmm. So we, we wait for that. So Roger is a wonderful storyteller and the stories in this book are just as engaging as the ones from his previous book. So if you liked When Running Made History, then I think uh, you'd like this book too. And the book was extensively researched and does a fantastic job of explaining the discrepancies in uh, reported information, uh, especially from, you know, way, way back in the past when we didn't have, um, actually, I guess it's not so far back when we didn't have all these recording devices in our pockets. Uh, One area that was very interesting was the account of the first Olympic 800 meter for women, which is uh, what Alan mentioned. Uh, The news outlets wanted to show how weak women were, but the video footage might not have actually been uh, what it was supposed to be, uh, which was kind of interesting. Um, It just shows how how much time and effort Roger put into really trying to make sense of the information that was out there, that he did recognize that that this might not be the case. Roger hasn't tried to rewrite his previous book. So, um, you know, if you have read the previous book, there's this is a good compliment. There are other books also out there. And what he tries to do is fill in the gaps. So not to rewrite a book that already exists. So if you, you know, if you do like running history and you've read some of these other books, um, Roger's book might be right up your alley. So that just leaves us to say, before we do our wrap-up, thank you again for your time, Roger. We really appreciate your generous uh, approach to spending time with us and talking about it. It sounds a little bit like you're happy to talk about running at most on most occasions. I'm happy to talk to people who are prepared to read things carefully and then, and then talk about them at some length. You know, I, I, I don't much like the soundbite culture that, that yeah. we live in. And so the fact that you, you you are both exploring and thinking and thinking it through and then passing on those reflections to your listeners, uh, that really appeals to me. And I'm, gra- I'm grateful for the opportunity to contribute to it. Fantastic stuff. So thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. Big thank you to the publisher, Mayor and Mayor Sport, for providing review copies of the book. And big thank you to Roger Robinson for spending time with us today for the second time. If you would like to leave us feedback about how we can improve the podcast or want to suggest a book that you would like us to review in a future episode, please leave us a comment on social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are reviews underscore running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes when they're released, or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. If you have been listening for a while and are wondering how you can help us out, there are a few ways. If you're enjoying the podcast, spread the word. 
tell your friends about us or share a link to your favorite episode with a running partner. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that is how you listen to your podcast. Or uh, you can also rate us on Spotify out of five stars. They don't really have reviews, but you can give us, you know, one, two, three, four, or five stars would be my preferred outcome. But for sure, the Mine too. Uh, <laughs> for sure the option is yours. You've got five options. Uh, we're also on Buy Me a Coffee, where you can buy us a coffee. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.